The point is, is that the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of truth, as he's called, our helper, doesn't work in a vacuum. He works in conjunction with the Word of God. Just as there are two parents in physical birth, there are two parents in spiritual birth. We're born again of the Spirit. We're born again of the Word. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God, even so in sanctification. You're to be filled with the Spirit, but you're filled with the Spirit in conjunction and in relation to the Word of God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three and the conclusion of Dr. Brogy's sermon entitled, Sharing Christ in the Spirit. Today, Pastor Carl answers the question of how a true convert can really tell if they are abiding in Christ. In this sermon, we will see that the Spirit of Truth works in conjunction with the Word of God, and if we are in the will of God, our heart is clear, and by faith we can trust the will of God to empower us moment by moment in our lives. Please join us in the book of John, chapter 15, verse 7, as we continue. There are people across America today, I've been baptized as a Christian, I've been confirmed as a Christian, I'm a member of a church somewhere, that means I'm going to heaven. Oh, no, 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 no. He makes it here and clear, clearly in verse 6 that if a person is not rightly related as shown through the evidence of bearing fruit, God casts them into the fire here at the end of verse 6, and they are burned. By the way, the prophet Ezekiel uses the same imagery. Put out next to verse 6, if you will, Ezekiel 15, 1 to 8. That would be a great text to go home and read, Ezekiel 15, 1 through 8. There God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel, and he warns that if a vine failed to produce fruit, its wood was good for nothing but for fire. And because of the rebelliousness of the people living in the capital of Israel, they really, in one way, reflected the whole nation, the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. By the way, it's God's eternal capital. Uh, Trump may have acknowledged it and moved the embassy there, which I'm very grateful that he did that. But ever before man acknowledged it as the capital, God said it was the capital. With that said, let me just read one verse from Ezekiel. He said in verse 6 of that chapter, Therefore, thus says the Lord, God, you'll notice, by the way, God is in all caps, so Elohim, Yahweh, kind of like when it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see capital G, capital G, O, capital D, that's Yahweh, God's covenant name. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, the people in Jesus' day knew this passage well. This was like, not quite like John 3.16 is to us, but understand, a very well-known passage of Scripture. And so, Jesus is reminding us of the fate of those who produce no fruit. Now, please notice what the Lord is doing here. He's carefully distinguishing the severed branches from the attached branches. Judas was a severed branch. He was committed to the cause, but he wasn't committed to the Christ. He had an outwardly religious relationship, but he had never attached himself through genuine faith. And there are people like that who fill even evangelical churches. They're living in gross outward sin, 
and yet they say they're born again. There's no discipline, there's no sorrow, there's no grief. They've deceived themselves, but I come to church. I do this in His name, and I do that in His name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. Understand, you're not saved by producing fruit. Jesus is not teaching salvation by works and denying a theme He's underscored all the way through John's gospel, that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But He is saying that if you are saved, you will produce fruit. And when there's no fruit, it just means there's no new life. Fire, that's the end of vine wood. I mean, once it's all dried up, it's useless. You can't build a house with vine wood. You can't make a piece of furniture. You can't make a kitchen utensil. You can't even make a hook on which to hang your hat. It's good for nothing but for kindling. And the point the Lord is making that just as dead branches in a vineyard are good for nothing but for the brush pile, so the person who professes to know Jesus, who claims to be attached to the vine, but who has no real fruit, he is ready for the fire and judgment of God. Now, that's important because sometimes I have to do a funeral, and the person says, well, so-and-so made a profession of faith. And then they've lived in adultery for the last 20 years. Now, I'm not their judge. God is. But the New Testament would give very little assurance that that person is born again based on Galatians 5, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 6. Very, very little assurance. And again, to emphasize, the Lord is not teaching here that a true believer can lose salvation. To teach that, again, would contradict what He has plainly said. And it's unwise to take a parable and to build a major doctrine on it. Typically, in any parable, there's one main truth. And the main truth He's underscoring here is their fruitful life. But just as an unfruitful branch is useless, so an unfruitful person, no matter what they may say, is destined for judgment. You say, well, how can I really tell if I am abiding? Is there some kind of special feeling? Well, clearly there are evidences that I am abiding. Now I'm talking here about a saved person who's attached. How do I know if I'm consistently abiding? What does it look like? Uh, well, um, here's a, a slide that might be helpful, the way fruit is used in the New Testament. There's certainly the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Paul delineates that in the book of Galatians, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's certainly one aspect of fruit that Scripture would interpret Scripture with. And certainly there's the fruit of introducing someone to Christ. Now, I recognize that God uses us in different ways. We read in the pastoral prayer this morning from John chapter 4 with the experience the disciples had in Samaria, and he said, you're, you're, you're reaping today, but because of someone else who did the work before you. Many times when I'm privileged to introduce someone to Christ, I'm just entering into someone else's labor. They've been praying, they've been sharing, they've been witnessing, and I get to walk into the harvest. Sometimes you get to do both. And again, God uses us in different ways, but if you drop down to verse 16, 
Clearly, Jesus has this in mind. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go, circle that word, go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. So one aspect of fruit in the New Testament is that of conversion. And people want to hide behind Galatians 5, I'll have the fruit of the Spirit. But many times they don't have the fruit of helping to bring someone into the kingdom. So fruit can refer to character, fruit can refer to uh, conversion, but it can also refer to good works. In Colossians 1 and verse 10, he speaks of the fruit of good works. In addition, Hebrews 13, fruit can be used to describe praise and thanksgiving. He speaks there of praise to God, that is, the fruit of the lips that give thanks to His name. Now, sometimes people try to rigidly separate praise from thanksgiving. The New Testament nor the Old Testament does neither. They're intertwined together. And so, the believer who comes here, who's Spirit-filled, you know what? They want to praise the Lord. (laughs) They like to sing. Can you imagine? They like to be with God's people. And, of course, we'll see more as we walk through here. There's a fruit of joy and the fruit of answered prayer. But let's read verse 7. Let's keep stepping through the text. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus teaches the fruit of prayer in his name. Now, clearly, this is not an unconditional uh, promise that you can make any demand on God and He will automatically answer. It says here, you must abide in Him and His Word must abide in you. And when you're abiding in Christ and His Word is abiding in you, then the asking will match the teaching. The two will go together. And so a superficial commitment to the Holy Scripture will not yield a prayerful life. Very often I get letters, notes, emails, people come here, they say, this is the first church I've been in where the pastors have actually opened the Bible, and I'm growing, and I'm excited, and God's changing my life, and I want to study the Scripture. See, we're not talking about a superficial commitment. We're talking to digging into the Scripture. Go home and read Ephesians 5.18. The command is, be filled with the Spirit. And then there's a series of participles that flow out all the way into chapter 6 that give the evidence from the verb, be filled with the Spirit. And if you compare that with Colossians 3.16, a different command, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. There's the command, and then there's the identical set of participles that flow through the Scripture. There'll be a life of joy. There'll be a life of gratitude and thanksgiving. There'll be a life of mutual submission one onto another. The point is, is that the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of truth, as He's called our helper, doesn't work in a vacuum. He works in conjunction with the Word of God. Just as there are two parents in physical birth, there are two parents in spiritual birth. We're born again of the Spirit. We're born again of the Word. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God, even so in sanctification. You're to be filled with the Spirit, but you're filled with the Spirit in conjunction and in relation to the Word of God. And when those two things are true, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I mean, that's an incredible promise. That's an astonishing pledge. But the key to getting what 
we want is wanting what he wants. And wanting what he wants comes from spending time digging, chewing, meditating on the Scripture. It's more than just memorizing a verse. You can have a quiet time, read a chapter of Scripture, and 10 minutes later, if your life depended on it, you couldn't remember anything from that chapter. We're talking about tearing in the Lord's presence, feeding on His Word, letting it be turned over in your heart and mind over and over and over again. Then we can, in faith, ask whatever we wish, and we can expect God to answer. Verse 8, my father is glorified by this. When we abide in him and his word abides in us and we ask whatever we wish, my father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So answered prayer comes from abiding in Christ and it's one aspect of fruit that comes for the glory of God. Now, what is the glory of God? It's often described the glory of God is the outward shining of an inward reality. And that's how the Shekinah is pictured in the Old Testament. And so if we're truly glorifying God, we are reflecting in our speech, in our deeds, in our words, the very character of Jesus Christ. But when your dependence on Christ is linked to obedience, that obedience is going to be linked to prayer because you recognize without Him you can do nothing. And then you begin to show the Lord off. Just as, verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, now he's giving us the motivation for abiding, just as, just like the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in me. Again, we, we, we read verses like this, and we've read it so many times, sometimes there's a, the sense of wonder is gone. Now, I, I think, what does he not say? He doesn't say, well, I love you like a mother loves her baby. He doesn't say, well, I love you like a faithful husband loves his wife. No, just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Well, how much did Jesus, how much does Jesus love us? As much as the Father loves us. How much does the Father love us? Endless, without measure, without beginning, without end. He loves us infinitely, and so in the high priestly prayer, when he comes to John 17, he will say it again, that the Father loves you as much as he loves his Son. Now think about these guys that are here with the Lord as they're headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, later that night, will deny him. Thomas, well, he's filled with doubts. Philip, he wants the invisible God to show himself while the visible expression of the invisible God was literally walking in their midst. Thaddeus is confused why Jesus, John 14, 22, doesn't want to show himself to the whole world. Matthew, well, he was a ripoff artist, a tax collector. Simon the Zealot, he had a set of priorities that were so contrary to the kingdom of God. James and John, the half-cousins of the Lord Jesus, called the sons of thunder, they get their mother to go, good Jewish mother, to ask Jesus, you know, we want to sit on his left side and his right side. I mean, these guys, you know, what a bunch. But Jesus loves them as much as the Father loves him. And John will later key off of this in 1 John 4 where he will say, we love him because he first loved us. And then he'll say, and this is the love of God, 
that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not a burden. Jesus says in verse 10, to love him is to obey him. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So if you want to live in the sphere of the spirit, then you have to obey. And when we obey, we experience the promise here in verse 11. Look at it. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Disobedience, it brings sorrow. Obedience brings the fullness of joy. And we're not talking about happiness. The world can experience happiness. This is a work of the Spirit of God. A fruit of the Spirit, among others, is joy. Jesus is full of joy, literally, as he sweats blood in Gethsemane. The writer of the Hebrews will remind us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And God wants you to know that joy. Now, how are we going to apply this text of Scripture? Let me make three applications as we close off our time this morning. Number one, I would simply ask, is God pruning you? Is God pruning you? If he is, just remember that it can be painful. And there will be times when you feel like you're bleeding more sap than you're producing fruit. But remember, there are seasons of pruning. Just like there are seasons to change the trees. There are seasons when God changes his children. But if you're under the knife today, don't despair. Just as there is a time to be pruned, there's a time to bear fruit. The psalmist will write, and you will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he'll prosper. Secondly, I would ask, are you filled with the Spirit? Are you filled with the Spirit? You can know that you are abiding in Christ. You can know that you're filled with the Spirit. First, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, is there an earnestness in your heart today to walk in fellowship with the Lord. Remember what Jesus said to his people in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied or they will be filled, depending on your translation. If there's not an earnest desire in your heart this morning to please the Lord, maybe you've just kind of grown stale in your love for him. You'll not be a spirit-filled believer. If there's not a desire, he may be resident in you. You're indwelt by him. That's called the baptism of the Spirit. But he's not present in you. He's not filling you. Here's a chart I made many, many years ago to try to distinguish the two. The baptism of the Spirit happens just once. It happens at the moment of conversion. Whereas the Spirit filling our life is a repeated experience. And we saw that two weeks ago when we studied Philip when we studied the week before that with Peter. It happens over and over and over again. Of course, the baptism of the Spirit never happened before the day of Pentecost. That's the promise of the new covenant. I baptize you with water. There's one coming after me who's going to baptize you with the Spirit. That happens the moment you believe. So it's not something that happens after your salvation. It happens the moment you believe. However, interestingly, While it never happened before Pentecost, there were instances in the Old Testament where a believer before the cross could experience for a short period of time the filling of the Spirit. 
So the baptism of the Spirit is true of all believers, where the filling of the Spirit is not necessarily true of all believers. Don't you wish that every single one of us this morning were filled with the Spirit? God wishes that. The baptism of the Spirit can never be undone. When I give you the Holy Spirit, I'll give Him to you forever. Again, these people who say you can lose salvation, they are just butchering the Scripture. Forever means forever. He's God's earnest, God's down payment, that what He began, He will complete. Whereas the filling of the Spirit can be lost. When you're baptized by the Spirit, you are identified into the body of Christ. You are deemed a saint of God, a holy one. It results in a new position. Whereas the filling of the Spirit results in power. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit we're all baptized into one body. We're all made to drink of the Spirit. It's assumed to be true. That's why Paul will write in Romans, if, if you haven't had the baptism of the Spirit, you're not one of His. You're not saved. It happens the moment of conversion, Ephesians 1. You hear, you believe, you're sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption. Whereas the filling of the Spirit... It's not always true. Remember Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. It's a loss of control, but be filled with the Spirit. The comparison is clear. A drunk person with a filled person. A drunk person, his walk and his talk has changed. Even so, one who's filled with the Spirit, his walk and his talk is changed. Just as a person under the influence of alcohol acts in an unnatural way, even so a person who's filled with the Spirit acts in a supernatural way. He's able to do things that he could not do on his own. And so the Scripture gives us four commands that someone, you know, you want to teach your children to walk in the Spirit. You not only want to introduce them to Christ, you want to teach them to walk in the Spirit. It's a whole lot easier to raise a Spirit-filled child than one that's not. And there are four critical commands that summarize this Spirit-filled life. One is grieve not the Spirit. How do you grieve the Spirit? You grieve the Spirit when you do those things that you shouldn't be doing. And so Paul will say in Ephesians 4 and verse 30, do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The word grieve, it's, it's a love word. Your neighbor's children may bother you, but they don't grieve you. But when your children do something that you know is not right, it just grieves you. It can break your heart because you love them. And so the Spirit of God, He's not an it. He's not a thing. He's not a force. He's as much God as the Father or the Son. Don't relate to Him as a power. He's not a power. You relate to Him as a thing. You'll never see His work like He wants to do. He is grieved when we sin, and the solution is to confess. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us. The Scripture says not only to not grieve the Spirit, but don't quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit, Paul will write in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. You grieve the Spirit when you do those things you shouldn't do. You quench the Spirit when you don't do those things you ought to do. God lays on your heart, I want you to be baptized as a new believer. Nope, not going to do it. You're quenching the Spirit. God lays on your heart, I want you to share Christ with that individual. That's what they need. I mean, I've put it right in front of you, and you don't do it. You've quenched the Spirit. It's like throwing cold water on His fire. 
So how do you deal with quenching the Spirit? Romans 12.1, you present yourself to God as a living and holy sacrifice. God, whatever you want me to say, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to give, whatever you want me to go, I am totally yours, yielded. And listen, then by faith you can obey the next command to walk by the Spirit. If you're not grieving the Spirit, if you're not quenching the Spirit, then by faith you can walk in the Spirit. What does 1 John say? This is the confidence we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked from Him. So if I am in the will of God, my heart is clear in every respect, totally yielded. By faith, I can trust the Spirit of God to empower me moment by moment. But to do that consistently, we must also sow to the Spirit. Paul will say, walk by the Spirit that you might not carry out the desires of the flesh. And he will later write in the same book that we're to sow to the Spirit. How do you sow to the Spirit? What we read this morning, abide in His Word. Paul will say it in these words in Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed out through the renewing of your mind. The Spirit of God doesn't work in a vacuum. He works in conjunction with His Word. So, I'm just asking, are you abiding in Christ? Are you filled with the Spirit? Finally, are you a real branch or a fake branch? I can't answer that, but today's the day to answer it. Tomorrow might be too late. All true Christians bear fruit. Are you a true believer or just religious? Have you ever genuinely been born again? Has your life ever really changed? Is it bearing fruit? Then come to Jesus, and He'll receive you. Now, Father, thank You for this incredible passage of Scripture. Give us ears to hear and wills to obey. Help us to take inventory this morning that if there is indeed unconfessed sin, that we might repent of it. If indeed we are quenching the Spirit because of our unwillingness to do something in the positive realm, be it singing a hymn or sharing our faith or whatever it might be, help us to present ourselves to you as a living and holy sacrifice so that by faith, knowing it's your will and notice, knowing that you always answer according to your will, help us to walk by faith in the power of the Spirit as we feed on your word as a man would feed on a loaf of bread to sustain himself, you said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And help someone today, wherever they may be, who only professes Jesus, who have never really been born again. Their life doesn't show it. Help them to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus and his power to save. Jesus, I ask it in your name and for your honor. If you missed any portion of today's sermon or a previous sermon in this series, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Sharing Christ in the Spirit, 021. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, mothering from the heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play store. Also, 
check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.